So today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 22-27. Jesus speaking, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Jesus said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So in our brief time today, I'd like to just focus on verse 26. Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them when the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We are saved through faith in Christ. But it's not just faith in Jesus as an abstract ideal that is salvific. It is faith in Jesus as whom Scripture presents him to be, whom he said he was, and who the church proclaims him to be as the Lord and Savior. This for the early church had a very poignant application in that even compared to the Jewish people, Christians were extremely sectarian for Roman religious thinking. They would not participate in any of the festivals. They often would drop out of the army upon conversion, and they were seen as being socially irresponsible, often called atheist in pagan literature, because they would not burn any incense to Caesar. Christians were martyred by the thousands because their proclamation, there is one God and one Son who has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And they could not in good conscience deny that because those who deny Jesus, he will deny. And today I thought of perhaps a little bit more of a poignant application. Most of us are not going to get hauled up in front of Caesar anytime soon. But we have the same temptation to compromise. I know it myself. Whenever a pro athlete gets on TV and starts talking about how Jesus is a big thing in his life, I almost get a sinking feeling in my gut. Why? Because the world, the educational systems, other people's opinions have taught us that that's inappropriate to talk about. Well, I'm here to tell you today, people, Haters are going to hate. People-pleasing is the sin that is destroying the moral fabric of religion, particularly 
and the United States, and I have no problem saying that. As a pastor, I, on two sides of debates, get, if you don't do this, I'll leave, I won't be happy. Well, if you do that, then I'll leave, I won't be happy. We make everything about our judgment upon other people and whether other people like us determines whether we do it. Think of all the times we don't ever call anyone out on something because well, he might get upset. Or we don't even speak our opinion. We just let the other person barrage us with theirs because if we do it, well, we'll at least seem cool. I think of a story I read about a month ago about a girl because she was so obsessed with getting little clicks on the like button, with being popular, caring what people think. She climbed up on top of the Grand Canyon to take a photo and fell right in. And we may go, oh, that's just the kids these days. No, it is not. When people step out on their spouse so that they can feel appreciated, feel desirable because someone else feels that. When the kids are offered the drugs, hey man, if you don't try this, you're a square, bro. We find the path to hell in so many different ways in trying to please people. But the biggest thing is, it is a bondage that destroys ourselves by its very impossibility. Completely apart from religion, you cannot please everybody. You need to just knock the fantasy out of your head that you will live in a world where every single person will like you. The reason kids use the term haters, it's like a comedian once said, a hater's job is to hate. They will just find somebody that they don't like. So we really don't have much ground in this world of saying, oh, these people don't like me over there. Nine times out of ten, you need more people who don't like you. Think of those who are successful. Think of those who actually do have some beauty. Because normally notice what people tend to dislike about one another. Just hop on the internet and, and read it. Nine times out of ten, people are talking bad things about one another, trying to hold folks back. The other times that our parents hold us back by saying, oh, my, my opinion, my approval of you, is when they feel it's unrealistic or undesirable for us to fulfill our goals. But perhaps the biggest thing that wraps it all up around is people-pleasing is sin. There's all sorts of verses about putting the fear of man aside and bringing forward the fear of God. Yes, there are times when it's unpleasant peer pressure, but the reason it gets in and roots in so deep is because we actually like the approval of other people. We like it when they go, oh, look at him. He's so cool dancing up on that keg. We like being the party guy. One of the things that drives me nuts as a slightly younger man is, you know, when folks my dad's age start taking the tie off, putting it on the head, and acting cool. We, we like people thinking we're cool. Otherwise, there wouldn't be billions of dollars in cosmetic industry. They wouldn't have sayings like sex sells if people's opinions of us didn't really matter to us, make us feel important, and fulfill us. But see, in a fallen world, that's just a weak spot. Because I'm briefing this up a little bit, but those folks we like to call haters. Well, they're psychologically wired to be negative. They have found that for a great majority of people, once they push out one negative opinion, they start pushing out two negative opinions, they start pushing three negative opinions, and even perfectly 
Same individuals, if shown four options that they don't like, typically just hate the fifth. But we also know that this, there's toxic personalities that like to cut people down. And one of the most interesting things in secular business ad administration is the employee that complains the most about the other employees is statistically the most likely to rip off the company. Because they're stupid, this is stupid, you're stupid, I deserve this. And there's plenty of envy going around in the world where those who can't trip those who can. So this is why Jesus is pushing that he's got to be the Lord of our lives. He has walked among his sheep. He has seen them backbiting. As we spoke last week, what were they fighting about? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? What, it is, what was Jesus' answer to that? Be the child. Be the one of the lowest account. And here, Jesus is saying, when people ask you who your God is, is it me or is it your ego? Is it who God actually is or is it self-protection? Will you confess that you believe I, Jesus, am your Lord and Savior? Or will you say no, so these other people leave you alone? See, Jesus faces a tough situation. He has to free us from sin. He has to free us from ego. He has to free us from people-pleasing. But as he will tell his disciples later, he's sending them as sheep among wolves. We Christians have the uncomfortable position that in a world that worships itself, that worships what other people think about it, that's constantly spending a whole bunch of money about it, we are not allowed to play the game. And for the early Christians who walked in a world of idols to wealth, to love, to art, it came down to an actual blood, sweat, and tears issue. Because they'd be asked, is your God Jesus or is it love? Is your God Jesus or is it your own life? Is your God Jesus or is it security? Ad infinitum. But see, this even played into Jesus' life. We have become numb to it. We have so many scholars who, who make our ears itch with what we want to hear. We've lost the fact that Jesus' whole problem in the Gospels is he stands up there and says, I am the way, truth, and life, and means it. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus is being 100% truthful. He really means it. And that's why they killed him. Because see, Jesus, he had a vision. He took a position, and he didn't care whether they liked him or not. He had beliefs that were core that he would die for, and he would not offer any incense to satisfy, indulge what people wanted. Jesus was so authentic that everyone walking around him had their own inauthenticity pointed out. That's why Jesus has to be so harsh here. We, we barely ever get anything in the New Testament that seems to be a requisite. It's Jesus, we're saved by grace, right? Not by works, but by, by just believing. Well, the thing is, who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus was a man who said, you know, Pharisees, haters gonna hate. He didn't care whether people liked what he said or not. There isn't the verse, he stuttereth not, but I kind of wish it was in there. And he made amazing, exaggerated claims. Were they exaggerated claims? Were they honest claims about himself? 
Here's stories of miracles. He asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right once, but at the other time starts to blow it. Jesus is this radical rabbi, this teacher, this prophet, or is he something more walking through the streets, kicking people out of the temples? That is who we are called to believe, and that is who we are called to follow. So if you're going to be his disciple, you can't wuss out on the, do you know Jesus? Jesus would not care whether someone said, I won't like you, Jesus, unless you change that. So you can't say you believe and you following and you have any discipleship if that's your full point. But even more than that, you can't say you're his disciple if that's where you're trying to get others to fold. We do not look like Christ when we come and say, hey, if you don't do what I want, I won't like you. It's not love the sin, hate the whatever you want to spin it as. It's a conditional statement. Sorry, it's a non-conditional statement. Be like Christ and be his disciples. So what does it mean to be his disciples? It means we're going to have his dreams, his hopes, and his ideals. We are going to aim for that same perfect, audacious world, that kingdom come that Jesus did, that world that cannot have any hope of coming into being unless God does it. And everyone who is of this world, who can't see God acting, who thinks that Jesus is just a dreamer who wants to dream his dreams, who says we must bend to the times, we must get to the, whatever it is, will despise us. That's just part of being a disciple. But it also means disciples are free. Even secular people have the problem Folks are going to hate them just because they're them. But Jesus has freed us from caring. He's freed us from putting our bet into what this world does, how this world ends up, or what this world thinks. And I think this is why his disciples throughout history have always been successful. Because we'll achieve nothing by being timid. If we can't get past the discussions of opinions, we as a church are belly up. Because I can give you an example of how opinions work in churches. I, I find this perhaps a bit harsh to some of our brothers and sisters, but it's not very surprising to me that in this day and age, you can find a Unitarian church growing next to a, let's say, denomination that's almost Unitarian. They're the same ideals, but one's growing, the other's shrinking. Why is that? Well... I'll give the Unitarians credit on this. They present with the question, what's your opinion? And as scripture tells us a lot of times, you can get someone to at least worship their own opinion. What do you think of God that you'll worship? That's the basis of a lot of the idols and the vain imaginations in the Old Testament. Well, I think God is this way. I think he's a fish, so I'm going to worship him. So you can grow a congregation. You can get a gathering off of that. But the real indictment of the kind of Christian church that's being run by what's my opinion, what's my feelings on these things, is those churches tend to come and approach people with, this is our opinion. Won't you come and worship it? You can get someone to worship their own opinion all day, 
but it's a lot harder to get someone to worship your own opinion. But how many times the church is sapped of power because that's what they're doing? And that's the real reason Jesus is pushing us down to here, because what do we worship? Who do we acknowledge as a church body? It's not an opinion of Christ. It's not a feeling about Christ. It's not something that if you push me on, I can wrestle with. It is served up on a plate. This is who Jesus is. He existed as a concrete person. If you don't like it, sorry. But he's not going to do anything about it. And we just have the question, are we ashamed that that's our Jesus? I think for a lot of churches, that's a breaking point. Are we ashamed of, of a Jesus that struggles with our minds, with our comprehensions? Does a Jesus that walks up to blind men and say, see, are we ashamed of that? Are we ashamed of a Jesus who goes to Lazarus' tomb and tells him, come out, and Lazarus rises from the dead? Or can we not accept that Jesus and have to have a passed out Lazarus? We have to have a slightly blind dude with some sand in his eye. Are we ashamed of the church's Jesus who goes to the cross, dies, and is dead for three days, dead, dead, and rises again? Are we ashamed of that Jesus to the point that we have to imagine some phantasm where, oh, he didn't really resurrect, they just thought they saw him. No, Jesus is here saying, I am who I am. And he asked us constantly, are we ashamed of him? Because when it comes to the big questions then, how do we react to these crawling dread diseases? How do we react to these debates we have with ourselves? How do we re react when we hear terrible news down the street? Do we react hopelessly? Well, then that's probably because we're a bit ashamed of this hopeful Jesus we have. We must truly come to a point that we stand on the Christ of Scripture. I myself stand on the Christ of Scripture, and I can tell you there are nations, there are entire doctrinal schools that hate me for it. But I can tell you, if I went the other way around, they'd be people hating me too. And one of the things I've learned that makes people the most successful as disciples, that makes them the most powerful as a witness for Christ, that makes them powerful in prayer, is that they get more and more people to dislike them. Because it is an audacious thing to say, I can pray to the Almighty God and he will listen. It is a completely radical notion to this world to say, if I sit and quiet, I can hear his voice. It is something that most people will never tolerate in another human being. And yet it's promised in Scripture. It's promised we have his Holy Spirit. It's promised that he is with us even to the end of the age. Let us pray.